seeking to learn about what the writer David is meditating on. Namely, that the Lord, God, the creator of all that is, the eternal one, holy and mighty, is David's shepherd. This morning we'll be considering verse 5, which I'll read in just a moment. But to help us get a sense of this whole meditation, I'm going to read the whole of Psalm 23. Follow along if you would. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist David is in this psalm creating a visual picture of a shepherd who cares for all the needs of his sheep. In verses 1 through 3, he feeds them, waters them, makes sure they are at rest, finds them when they wander, leads them on a good path. And then in verses 4 and 5, David says the shepherd is just as attentive to the sheep in the hardest parts of the journey where he leads. We thought about the shepherd's care for us in and through our fears last week as we thought about our journey through the valley of the shadow of death. This week, in verse 5, we're directed to two lesser yet prominent threats that we face and how the shepherd's involvement in our life addresses those. Two threats, I think, are in view in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil My cup overflows. And those two threats are enemies and scarcity. Having a known foe and not having enough. Now these may not immediately register with you in your life right now as threats that you're perceiving or undergoing. But as we look closer, I trust we'll see that these threats are very relevant in our lives. And therefore, we will want to see just how this shepherd, the Lord, can help us. Of course, he can help us. And he does help us. In the face of our threats, the Lord, the shepherd, invites us to enjoy security and satisfaction from him and with him. That's the main idea of Psalm 23, verse 5. At the shepherd's table, we have security and we have satisfaction. We're going to approach that main idea in two parts. We're going to see our security first at the shepherd's table. And then secondly, our satisfaction at his table. Those will be my two points if you're taking notes. 
Let's start with finding our security at the shepherd's table. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So put that picture in your mind and think about it. Imagine the scene. A dinner table set up, completely arranged and catered by the Lord. And David is invited to come sit down and eat. If you don't have it in your mind, work on it and wait until that scene is a happy scene. An inviting scene. A warm place for you to come. In the culture in which David lived, in which most of scripture was written, Near Eastern culture valued community and relationship. It wasn't like our Western culture of isolation and individualism that we so often experience here. And in the midst of those cultural priorities, a meal together was maybe the most significant place to enjoy fellowship. So imagine Thanksgiving on the daily. Now, maybe not the part of Thanksgiving where we overstuff ourselves and feel terrible. But imagine the the good feeling that some of us have gathered around that table. Loved ones, longer conversation, nothing on the calendar but to be together. On the way to taking his place at the table, though, this table of fellowship with the Lord, David notices that all around the table are people who hate him. People who are trying to malign his name, do him harm, thwart his plans. His enemies. It's like if the president held an international dinner for world leaders at the White House and midway through the meal, his security team comes in and tells them that the whole house is surrounded by hostile forces. It would be hard, wouldn't it, to continue in enjoyment of conversation, being together knowing that threats existed like those. So this is a strange scene. All the good vibes of the meal, coupled with dangerous overtones of enemies watching while you eat. Why would David include this situation in the highlight reel of a psalm that lists all the reasons why it's so good to be in the shepherd's care? Wouldn't it be a terrible experience? To be eating a meal in nervous alertness? One eye on your plate, one eye on your enemy? Or having to dine and dash for fear that if you sat down and enjoyed yourself, your attackers would seize the opportunity and pounce. But notice David has a certain assurance and confidence. He understands that the enemies are watching. But he also realizes that that is all they can do. They know that David is there. They can see David, their enemy. They know and understand he would be defenseless if they jumped at him. But they cannot touch him at this table. This is the setting the shepherd chooses. When he begins and carries on in preparing the table. The Lord did not see a need to set the table in the absence of David's enemies. 
or away from David's enemies, but he laid out the picnic blanket right in front of his enemies. The setting of the meal in the middle of enemies and yet unthreatened by those enemies focuses our attention on the power of the shepherd. He is the reason why David can sit and eat in peace and why his enemies can do nothing but look on. And while the shepherd is present, the one at the table can enjoy peace. In love and care, the shepherd procures and prepares the meal and invites us to take part. In power and might, the shepherd protects us as we come and enjoy what he's prepared at his table. At the shepherd's table, we are secure. David likely knew what it was literally meant to be in the presence of enemies. At times he hid in rocks and in the mountains while he was being hunted. But as you hear enemies and in the presence of enemies, it may be hard and a struggle to see how this could apply to us. And while a nice meal sounds nice and everything, it hardly seems special enough to risk danger for, to enjoy in presence of enemies. So what is this table and who are our enemies? Well, the table is how the Bible consistently represents our participation in fellowship with God. In Eden, the whole garden was the table. Full of every different kind of fruit bearing plant and tree for Adam and Eve to enjoy. All within the security and protection of this haven, this garden that God had made for them. It's interesting to think about. We understand that Satan came at a moment and all humanity fell. But curious maybe to think how many times they might have eaten while Satan was lurking nearby planning his attack. And yet Adam and Eve weren't afraid. And they didn't need to be. We find the table showing up again in scripture's witness in the tabernacle. Inside the outer gate. And inside the first curtain. Where God promises to make his presence known to Israel. On the table is sitting the bread and the candlestick. Signifying God's presence and his provision for his people. And then when Jesus shows up. Jesus prepares a table for his disciples. He sits down with them. The son of God and the son of man enjoys fellowship with men he came to save at the table. It was a meal eaten in the presence of Jesus' enemy, Judas, who would go on from that meal to betray Jesus, selling him to the men who would crucify Christ. At that meal, Jesus promised that he would make another meal for them one day in the new heaven and the new earth, a place where we could enjoy life with them forever. So the table represents our fellowship with God. We are at it as his followers because he prepared it. We know about it because he in his grace and mercy called us and welcomed us in to come and sit at it. We didn't have tickets. We didn't have money. We didn't have works. 
We were not dignitaries. We were not contemporaries of the holy God. We were not deserving of the invite that came to us. We were poor and we were lowly. We were outcasts and we were rebels. And still he in his mercy issued a call. Come, I've prepared a feast for you. A feast of my grace that you can come and enjoy freely and fully. And when we see that he has made that for us, we should step back and wonder, Lord, you made this for us. For us? As we often sing, while all our hearts... And all our songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cries out with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Have you admired the feast recently? Look at the feast. Look at what is here. God's gracious choice to save you, Christian. His eternal love set on you. Redemption through Christ's blood. Forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Lavished on us by Christ. Knowledge of God's will to save us. And then to set us on a course of life forever with him. There's an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. There's confidence that the Lord is working in all good things for our good and his glory. And there is assurance that the Holy Spirit keeps us until we receive the eternal life promised to us in Jesus. What a feast. Maybe you can't see it. Maybe the threat of enemies obstructs your view of the goodness of Christ's salvation and the inheritance you have as his child. Who are these enemies? And what threat do they pose to the people of God? Well, according to the Bible, all who are united to God through Jesus, all who follow in obedience to Jesus, who welcome his grace and mercy shown to us on the cross as he takes our sins and gives us salvation, all who are disciples of Christ have enemies. Our enemies are all the people who are against us because we are in fellowship with God. So Jesus says in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You have inherited his salvation. You've also inherited his enemies. Now, one of the effects of God's common grace to us in this particular country we're living in at this particular time is that we've largely, largely forgotten what it's like to be Christians with visible enemies. Unlike our brothers and sisters that we prayed for earlier in our service in countries like Pakistan or India or China or in parts of Africa, we do not live aware Often that there is a real possibility that someone could walk into our gathering and by force of government or military force us out, imprison our leaders or even torture and kill us. For all its obvious weaknesses, we should be thankful for the grace of God shown through our current government 
to restrain as much persecution and harm against the church in America as it has. God has been kind to us in that way. Remember, these freedoms we enjoy are freedoms to steward for evangelistic purpose, not simply to squander for selfish ends. If you live in a free country, then talk freely with your neighbors about Jesus. If we're allowed to publicly gather like this, then invite everybody you work with to come and learn about Jesus with us here. It's a stewardship. Use it as God would have us. In other parts of the world and through much of church history, visible enemies have always been part of the story. Have always been present. I remember a young Saudi Arabian man named Ahmed telling me his father pointed a gun at his head and told him that he would pull the trigger the next time he caught his son reading a Bible. My friend Ali showed up in Dubai as a refugee, having to flee his home and family when he began seeking answers about Jesus in his Pakistani village. Or Christian missionaries evacuated in the night from Afghanistan because they'd learned of plans for the government to come and arrest them immediately. The hundreds and thousands of stories of faithful men and women whose lives were ended due to their open faith in Jesus Christ. Or the stories that have never been told. But the ones that God knows of believers silenced, disappeared, jailed till they died, or executed, and loved ones never knew what actually happened. What did David's words mean for those who know full well the threat of visible enemies? Well, they are no less comforting, comforting, but they are more, I think. Apparently, a man can take away my life, but he can't take away my seat at the Lord's table. Our place in the fellowship of Jesus is permanent. It's protected from all visible enemies. Enemies do not jeopardize the eternal blessing of the Lord in our life. They may threaten, but they do not hinder. They prowl, but they cannot pounce. I do not say it as a light thing. And I say it as one who has, dear, have, who has had dear friends who, have caught, who their faith in Christ has cost them much. I do not say it as light. But I do say it in confidence from God's word. We don't need to be afraid of our enemies. Because even if they touch us, they cannot take us out of fellowship with the shepherd. Stephen saw Christ at his execution in Acts 8. And after stones crushed him, he woke up at the table. The torture and flame the martyrs met, only they knew would hasten their arrival at heaven's joys. That's why Jesus says, in the face of your enemies, love them. Love them and do not seek vengeance. There's no need to expend energy on impotent enemies that have already been conquered by Christ. They cannot really eternally harm us. 
Our enemies need to hear from us. That they need to repent and believe in Christ so much more than we need from them to experience their favor towards us. When Christ returns in victory, he will sentence all his enemies and all ours to just punishment if they have not been hid under the blood of Christ at Calvary. If they remain in their sin, they will be eternally ruined. We love them by telling them. With all the freedoms that we have historically enjoyed in this country, some of us feel in this time and age that visible enemies are creeping ever closer to us. That modern ideologies and movements and groups are coalescing around hate for God's ways. I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. It has, after all, in the grand scope of history, always been that way. We are not insulated from participating in persecution. Nowhere that I know of does Jesus give us a get out of suffering for the gospel pass because we live in the United States. If our generation, or the next one, or the next one, more palpably experiences the presence of their enemies because they are followers of Jesus, wouldn't now be a good time to start preparing ourselves so that we can prepare our children and our grandchildren to know that even if that happens, they can run to the table. We must begin to learn that we have security in God always of an eternal kind. Not only when temporally enemies are far off, but when they are face to face. Visible enemies or not, all God's people are surrounded by invisible enemies. Forces of darkness, princes of evil... An enemy described in 1 Peter as a lion who desires to devour us. Psalm 23.5 reminds us that the shepherd is well aware of the position we're in. Surrounded on every side. It reminds me of Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6. If you don't know that story, write down 2 Kings 6 and go back to it and read. It reminds me of that story because when Elisha and his servant were just the two of them, trapped on a mountain with enemies all around, horses and chariots, the servant responds is is just panicking, scared for his life. And Elisha assures him, those who are with us are more than those who are with the enemy. Then Elisha prays for the Lord to show the servant what's really going on and his eyes are opened. And what he sees is a mountain full of horses and chariots on fire. Angel armies. I suppose what Elisha's servant felt when he saw those angels is about as secure as one could possibly feel. If you are sensitive and aware of the invisible threats around you, I understand. They are real, after all. Remember, evil enemies of God are not the only power at work, nor are they the strongest. Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. And when he calls for judgment, even Satan will obey his voice. 
Christian, Christ's promises made and kept are the shield that hold back our enemies. He has promised to shed his blood for our life, and he did. He promised at the table to be poured out for our forgiveness, and he was. He promised to go to the Father and come back for us, and he will. There's no enemy, near or far, visible or invisible, that can sever the inseparable bond that holds you to Christ. You are at the table, and there you will remain. David is invited to this table, and so as an invitee, As he sits down, he needs not be fearful for his protection. He trusts that if the shepherd wants him there in the presence of enemies, the shepherd will keep him safe. You, Christian, are secure at the table Jesus has set for you. The threat of man's mistreatment will not pull you away from Christ. There is security at the shepherd's table. Secondly, there is satisfaction here. Satisfaction at the shepherd's table. David writes, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So David has not switched settings. He's not trying to get us to imagine a different scene now and move on in the imagery. No, he's in the same place, still hosted by the shepherd. The oil coming on his head, the overflowing cup may seem odd to us. But again, these are known images to the culture that he's writing in of expressions of hospitality and fellowship. You remember in Luke 7 when the woman comes to the table where Jesus is eating, the the woman who was an outcast because of her known sin, and she pours what she'd been saving, that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And then Jesus' host, Simon, scowls at the act. And Jesus corrects Simon, pointing out, That Simon did not perform the customary role of the host. He says, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. So we would learn even through the scriptures of these cultural norms of hospitality. Apparently a host would put perfume on the guest's head as a way to bless the guest as they entered their home. It probably smelled good. It probably refreshed the person. They might have rubbed it on their face. Other parts of scripture tell us that this symbol of oil on the head represents joy and gladness. So Ecclesiastes 9 verse 8 says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So that's the oil. But what about this overflowing cup? When we lived in Dubai... The local people there would, when you came into their home, they would serve you a a tea, an Arabic tea, when you visited their house. Little cups like this. And at the beginning of your time together, they would fill it to the brim. But if you stayed longer than you should, they would only halfway refill your cup. As a way to subtly message that it was time to go home. So the full and even the overflowing cup communicates a delight by the host to have you at his table and that you are there and welcome to share in the abundance of what your host has. Of course, a person able to fill a cup with wine and just keep on pouring it from the bottle and not being concerned that some of it is just kind of falling, not going to be drunk and in our opinion, wasted. He's just happy to keep going as a way to show my abundance is your abundance. 
In my study this week, there are actually accounts of people traveling to Eastern cultures and receiving this very treatment. A host pouring and it just keeps going out of the cup. And then an expression of, I'm glad you're here. Share with me. The anointing and the cup taken together together give a picture of a shepherd clearly communicating that he wants the person at his table to participate in the abundance that the shepherd has. Nothing is spared to welcome and bless the guest. Now, while it may not seem like the same kind of threat as mistreatment by enemies, we do feel threatened. By the prospect of lack or scarcity, don't we? Some of us are currently or can remember times when we were living day to day. Not sure of where our next meal would come from. Others of us, even though we have plenty, worry that it could all slip away like that. And we won't even tomorrow have the basics of what we need, even though we have more than enough today. I'm not just talking about food or drink. I'm not just talking about money either. I'm talking about other things like relationship or people who love us or health or future. Even if we currently feel that we're very secure from our enemies, we might acutely feel threatened at the thought that there won't be enough. Well, in response to this threat, we have two choices. Trust in the Lord. Or trust in ourselves. I don't know a single self-dependent person who is satisfied. I do not know a single self-dependent person who is truly satisfied. If you trust in yourself, and I know that full well, because I've lived most of my life battling that. If you trust in yourself, you will always suspect you've not done enough. Or you don't have enough. If your power is what you think provides for you. You will live in anxious worry. Dreading the day when your power runs out. As David describes the kind of care he receives from the Lord. The master of the great house. Know that if you've been battling and struggling. And overcome by the threat of scarcity. And lack Or you've been striving to provide for yourself on your own strength. And you know it will not hold up. Then hear from the master of this great house and this table. Through David's words an invitation to come and join in here. And be satisfied. Don't try to set your own table. Sit at the shepherd's table, at the Lord's table, through the cross of Jesus Christ and the abundant life he provides through his victorious resurrection. You will not only be abundantly provided for in all that you need, but you can know that it is coming from the one who has invited you. The one who owns all things, the one who shows in his treatment of you that he delights in you and he delights as a father and a host to lavish and share with you all things. I love this view of Jesus, the generous host. Reminds me of my in-laws on my wedding day. How happy they were to throw a party for a couple hundred people. Gladly welcome everybody. Gladly stick around and enjoy being together until it got dark. God is not scanty. 
He is not withholding in his provision for his people. He doesn't just give us the bare minimum and then leave us to help ourselves. The Lord is lavish. His gifts are extreme and his generosity is obvious from the moment you enter his house. He breaks out the best and he doesn't stop blessing. It's like what he did with Adam and Eve. He gave them and us this amazing creation to enjoy. You got to be blind not to see that blessing. And like what he told Moses about himself on the mountain, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this is what we receive from the Lord when he brings us into his kingdom. We enter, don't we, with heads bowed down, maybe your head this morning bowed down with guilt An awareness of hearts filthy with sin. And Jesus pours his grace. And washes away what is not clean. And brings joy. For your soul hunger and thirst. After what lasts. And what fills and you're craving to find what you cannot find. The Lord has something for you. That will never run out. His love and mercy provided through the sacrificial death of his son. To wash you and make you clean. Leave everything at the door. And come and sit at the table. Is it easy or is it hard right now for you to say my cup overflows? Maybe we're struggling with discontent or envy or with what God has decided to give us. Perhaps we're fearful that we won't have what we need. David invites us, visit the table, remember what the shepherd gives. Come into the room. Come in where the disciples had that last meal with Jesus. Witness Jesus' head as you enter, as they entered, bowed down before his guests and his hands washing their feet. In a few hours, this head would be about to receive a different kind of treatment. Not oil, but thorns. Not blessing, but cursing. As he takes blows of punishment for our sake. Take a seat alongside the disciples at a meal prepared and provided for by Jesus. Notice Jesus passing out the bread in the presence of his enemy Judas. Watch the son, the son of God, pick up the bread and say, this is my body broken for you. As he pours out the cup, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. Walk with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. And hear him talking to his father about the meal he is about to be served. In anguish he prays, Lord take this cup from me. But not my will but yours be done. Watch him as he ascends to the cross. And takes the bitter wine served to him by those who mock him. And drains the cup of God's wrath received. Reserved for us for our sin. But served to Christ for our salvation. 
Join the disciples at the meal of mourning days after Jesus was crucified. As they sit in sadness and in confusion and bewilderment, witness the appearing of Jesus, the resurrected and victorious Lord, joining for the meal. Jesus takes a seat and talks of his plans to bring them and us by the same path he just went through death into life so that we might end up in heaven with him at a feast that will never end. At the Lord's table, our needs are met. Here is where we can leave behind our fears and our discontent and be satisfied. If you've not yet sat down, Jesus invites you to come. I have met, and you probably have too, people in this world who have very little. Who live under threat of harm for their faith in Christ, and they are full of joy. Ironically, I've also met people who have everything and no known enemies, and they are fearful and discontent. When it comes to joy, knowing Christ and having this place at his table makes all the difference. When you live at the table with the shepherd, you know your circumstances do not determine whether or not you can stay at the table. You came to the table with nothing and it was and is and will forever be the Lord who feeds you. The invitation you heard to come is just as good now in new life as it sounded to you when you knew you were dying in your old life. Listen to it again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to the Lord and eat what is good and delight yourself in the rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, he says. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The shepherd's table is the only meal we eternally need. Bread of life. Living water are served here. Served by Jesus' love and sacrifice. By the Spirit, our other needs will be met. They will be addressed. We've already thought long on that in previous verses. We will have enough strength. We will have enough endurance. We will have enough faith for each trial and test of the enemy. Christian, you are currently sitting at the meal. But it's not the final one, is it? One day we're going to sit down together and feast with Christ our Savior face to face. Yes, for now enemies surround, but they do not remove us from the table and they never will. Yes, we fear and can sometimes face not having much here. But for what we need, the shepherd does not hold back. God did not spare his own son. And with that comes the assurance that in Jesus we will be given all things. Jesus is not worried about not having enough for you. Think about this meal that David is portraying for us. I imagine if you ever had a meal like the one David is describing, you never forget it. What a memorable meal that would be. The setting, the unending supply. 
It would remind you for a long time the kind of shepherd it was that sat you down, kept you safe, and blessed you like that. Thankfully, Jesus made sure we'd keep that memory throughout our Christian lives when he gave us a meal to remember him. We will come to that table in just a moment. No, at this table, we're not going to have overflowing cups. It's not going to be anybody to pour oil on your head, although maybe we'll think about that for future times. But the same shepherd David knew sets this table for us. Here we will sit. Once again, a group of Christ sheep in the middle of a world of enemies. Some of us will sit here without much in this world. Some will sit knowing plenty, but at the table we'll sit together knowing that what we have is Christ. And we share his grace in abundance. We remember here that Christ drank the cup of wrath so that we might drink the cup of blessing. That he was broken so that we might become one together with Christ. Remember as we come to this table why you are sitting here. And why we are sitting here. Look upon Christ at the cross as your invitation. To come to the table if you are not his. And remember at this table that this is not the final one. This is not the feast that's being prepared. There's another one being set in heaven. A table laid out. Jesus working at it. Having already done the sufficient work to give all that's needed to get us there. The shepherd is ready. He will soon delight to welcome us and sit us down. The air will be sweet with his presence. Our hearts will be satisfied in his fellowship. And all around you will be each other. And so many others. I assure you, you've never had a meal like that one. But you will. And it will never end. Let's pray.